Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 227 of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for the conclusion of our two-part deep dive on the history, science, and technique responsible for the world's most popular sour cocktail, the margarita. If you haven't already tuned into our first installment, which you can find in episode 224, I'd highly recommend that you take a spin through that audio essay before you proceed on with this one, because it lays a lot of important groundwork for what we're planning on covering this time. In particular, that first episode deals with the origins of sour taste perception in our non-human and primate ancestors, focusing on some of the evolutionary reasons why we're predisposed to enjoy sour and sweet tastes in combination. We also cover a couple of really important margarita precursors in the brandy crusta and the daisy, which lead us, finally, to the precipice of the 20th century when the margarita burst onto the international drinking scene. The goal of this part two is to track down some of the changes that took place in the beverage world immediately before and following quickly upon the heels of the invention of the margarita. And the reason for this tracking of historical trends is to try and understand what it truly means to be a margarita. As I mentioned last time, it's kind of a bendy cocktail that resides within a pretty bendy category. So to get to the heart of that issue, we need to start asking questions like, where does a traditional sour stop and a margarita begin? Is the salted rim optional, essential, or something else entirely? And should we think of this as a cocktail to be served up on the rocks, or does it not really matter? All of this might seem to boil down to a simple question of definitions, but in fact, if you follow the evolution of the margarita and its ingredients and proportions over time, you begin to realize that the look and feel of a margarita at any given point in history has much more to do with hacking our innate biology to best stimulate the human palate. We spent a significant portion of part one learning how our ability to perceive acids is both very ancient and absolutely essential to our constant quest for exogenous sources of vitamin C. But this time around, it's sugar that's the star of the show. In the same way that not all citrus juices or acids are created equal, not all sugars share the same attributes. It turns out that they can combine in strange and wonderful ways, but there are also certain hidden consequences lurking in the shadows. When all is said and done, the story of the margarita truly is the story of sugar, which is precisely what sets it apart from all its siblings and cousins in the sour family tree. That means we'll begin this episode by investigating the origins of the margarita's most common sweetening agent, orange liqueur. And to do that, we need to travel back in time to the Dutch Antilles over 200 years before the birth of the margarita cocktail. 
You may recall back from part one that the Brandy Crusta and the Daisy were made using a product called Orange Curacao, which, true to its name, was manufactured on or at least courtesy of the Dutch colony of Curacao, located off the north coast of South America. As the story goes, Spanish settlers originally planted Seville or bitter oranges on the island, but the trees and fruit didn't take well to the climate. Over time, normal sour oranges morphed into fibrous, inedible fruits with green skin that have come to be known as the laraja or laraja orange. It's from the skins of these fruits that curacao is traditionally made. It's also said that in the late 1600s or early 1700s, Dutch spirits entrepreneur Lucas Bowles derived an extract from the Laraja skins and had it transported back to Amsterdam by way of the Dutch East India Company to make his famous liqueurs. It makes sense then that early mentions of orange liqueurs in the cocktail canon are going to make use of curacao, which was often made using a brandy base the Laraja extract, and a sweetener. But after about 200 years of normal manufacturing and trade, in the 1870s and 1880s, one very important catastrophe rocked the world of wine and brandy and prompted a changing of the guard in the world of orange liqueurs. This event, of course, is the phylloxera plague that wiped out grape production on the European mainland, specifically in France, for decades to come. No grapes means no brandy, and no brandy means no brandy-based curacao. We can assume that the Dutch were just fine. They had plenty of sugarcane distillates to pivot to, but supply chains moved even more slowly back then, so the pest outbreak caused a major disruption nonetheless. This is where triple sec enters the picture. It's said to have been invented back in the 1830s, when curacao was still popular, by the Combier family, who owned a distillery in Saumur, France, which is about 200 miles southwest of Paris. Like many European liqueurs, there's a little bit of hocus-pocus, some smoke and mirrors, surrounding why it's called triple sec. Some say it's because the product was originally triple distilled, which would kind of make sense. Sec literally means dry, and the more times you distill something, the less water it contains. Other origin stories allude to the possibility that the Combier family used three different types of dried orange peel in their maceration, and still other explanations point to the fact that triple sec has, in general, less sugar than traditional curacao formulations. So that last explanation would be calling it dry in the same way that a wine can be dry, meaning containing less residual sugar. These new triple secs were created in a similar manner to curacao, except the peels were macerated in a neutral sugar beet spirit, the predominant spirit made in the immediate wake of phylloxera. Then they were distilled and fortified with sugar, also derived from the sugar beet. Unlike dark, sweet curacao, these products were lighter and more ethereal in flavor and appearance, but they still packed a huge punch of orange flavor. Remember this distinction because we'll be returning to the notion of heavy versus light sweeteners when we get to our more contemporary margarita recipes. In 1875, at the height of the phylloxera crisis, Cointreau created its iconic brand of triple sec using a method we can only assume was very similar to the one pioneered by Combier. 
Until the introduction of Maison Ferrand's dry Curacao in 2011, which was actually developed in partnership with Dave Wondrich, whom you'll remember from part one, Cointreau was pretty much the gold standard for what a clear orange liqueur is and should be. So if you encounter at any point a cocktail recipe that calls for triple sec, go ahead and assume that Cointreau is going to be an exemplary representative of that category. In 1880, five years after the launch of Cointreau, a new player entered the picture, and its name was Grand Marnier, a mashup comprised of the surname of the family responsible for inventing it and a timeless suggestion from a helpful friend. The family were the Marnier L'Apostoles, who ran a distilling operation in a town called Neuf-le-Château, just west of Paris, and the friend, and what a friend he was, was named César Ritz, the Swiss hotelier responsible for creating what we now know as the Ritz-Carlton hotel chain. After tinkering with a large stock of cognac acquired by his father-in-law Eugène Lapastole, Louis-Alexandre Marnier Lapastole decided that it would benefit from the addition of a rare orange extract from the Caribbean, in all likelihood the very same flavorant used in orange curacao. Some fine old cognac, some orange extract, and a little bit of sugar to marry it all together. Et voila, a star is born. But to be a star, you need to do more than just walk the walk. You need to talk the talk, and you need to dress the part. In 1880, La Belle Époque was really kicking into high gear in Paris ushering in a cultural golden age that featured a ton of fashionable trends and innovations. One linguistic fad was to call everything petite, which literally means small, but is often informally taken to mean cute or charming. So you didn't just have a dog, you owned a petit chien. And you didn't just read the daily newspaper, you read either Le Petit Journal or Le Petit Parisien. Those were the actual official names of the publications not just nicknames. So, amidst all this cutesy petiteness, one day, Louis-Alexandre Marnier Lapastole poured a dram of his orange-infused sweetened cognac concoction for his good friend César Ritz, and the latter decided that it would be smart to buck convention, to go against the grain, and call this delicious nectar Grand Marnier a name that was loud and proud, big and bold in a world where many seemed ready to kick back against the stifling petiteness of the bourgeoisie. So now we've got a spirit that talks the talk and walks the walk, but how would it dress the part? Well, that's where the tradition of the cognac region comes in. If you look at a bottle of Grand Marnier, you'll notice that it resembles the traditional Alembic or Charente still design used by French brandy distillers. This, of course, is no coincidence. The bottle was designed to look strikingly different, to stand out from the herd, and the whole ensemble is adorned with a red ribbon, or cordon rouge, affixed to the bottle by a wax stamp. For this reason, the term cordon rouge very quickly became synonymous with Grand Marnier's signature product. But it wasn't just Grand Marnier that benefited from its relationship with César Ritz. The hotel magnate famously partnered with Georges-Auguste Escoffier, one of the most famous and influential French chefs of all time. 
The liqueur was very quickly adopted by their respective food and beverage programs, also featuring in one of Escoffier's most iconic recipes, Crepe Suzette. This immediate exposure to the wealthiest palates across the continent catapulted Grand Marnier into the cultural consciousness of La Belle Époque, and it gave César Ritz and Escoffier, his culinary sidekick, something really interesting and innovative to talk about. Taken as a group, the trio of Orange Curacao, Triple Sec, and Grand Marnier are the three orange liqueurs that best define the category of orange sweetened sours that eventually evolved into the margarita. Curacao focuses on the intensity and uniqueness of the bitter orange flavor. Triple Sec operates by trying to convey all the orange flavor of Curacao, but without nearly as much sugar, and Grand Marnier is predicated on the notion that extravagance and boldness can bring any beverage to the next level. Orange liqueurs in general, and bottles like Cointreau and Grand Marnier in particular, were a huge part of beverage culture in continental Europe and beyond by the early 20th century when Americans began quaffing sunrise tequilas at Mexican resorts, as we mentioned at the conclusion of part one. But while all this experimentation with new style and old style daisies was happening in the new world, a new conflict was about to break out in Europe. I mean, yeah, there was some little squabble about an Archduke assassination that got a few people bent out of shape, but the conflict I'm referring to is one that would push bartenders to not merely combine spirits, acids, and orange liqueurs, but also to seriously consider and ruthlessly debate the ratios they used in the cocktail shaker. To learn why, we need to set the timeline back about a hundred years before the present day to a famous bar in Paris where a bartender named Harry McAlone was whipping up drinks for thirsty American expats who couldn't drink out in the open on their native soil where the Volstead Act was in full force. His venue was known as Harry's New York Bar, and this eponymous joint is absolutely legendary in the beverage world as being the definitive or assumed origin of drinks like the French 75, Bloody Mary, Old Pal, Monkey Gland, and importantly for this episode, the Sidecar. According to cocktail historian Simon Difford, whom we'll return to in just a minute, quote, The son of a jute mill owner from Dundee, Scotland, Harry first worked at Number 5 Rue Donu in Paris, the site he would later acquire and turn into Harry's Bar, when Milton Henry opened his New York bar there in 1911. He then headed to America, working at the Elton Hotel Bar in Waterbury, Connecticut, and the Plaza Bar, New York, before serving in the Air Force in World War I. When the war ended, Harry took up a role at Ciro's Club, London, where he became enough of a celebrity to publish his first book. Harry of Ciro's ABC of Mixing Cocktails, in 1921. End quote. In this book, we find a recipe for the sidecar cocktail, which is described as containing equal parts cognac, the orange liqueur Cointreau, and lemon juice. I managed to dig up a scanned PDF of the book online, so you can head over to the show notes if you'd like to see how it appears in its original format. Unfortunately, the edition I was able to find was the 1923 reprint and not the original version that came out two years prior. But you'll note that at least in this edition, he credits the sidecar to a bartender named Pat McGarry at Buck's Club in London. 
The same equal parts recipe also appears in another 1922 book called Cocktails, How to Mix Them by a Belgian-born bartender named Robert Vermeer. So we've got two equal parts recipes for the sidecar cocktail in around 1921 or 1922. That's our first kind of little inflection point in the sidecar evolution. Around the same time, a second recipe for the drink appears courtesy of Paris bartender Frank Meyer, who tended bar at the Ritz. Sound familiar? According to a tweet thread I dug up from Dave Wondrich, also linked in the show notes, this recipe was published in 1923, a year after the two equal parts recipes hit print, and had something that Wondrich describes as a two-thirds to one-sixth to one-sixth ratio of ingredients. This looks something like one and three-quarter ounces of cognac paired with about a third of an ounce each of lemon juice and triple sec. A little less than a decade later, a book would come out that presented a schism in the Church of Brandy Sours, much like the schism between the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches. The author was a barman by the name of Harry Craddock, and the book was the legendary Savoy Cocktail Book, and his recipe for the sidecar calls for two full ounces of brandy and one ounce each of orange liqueur and lemon juice. Craddock's sidecar recipe became known as the London School since he tended bar at a London hotel, while the equal parts rendition became known as the Paris School. Ironically, it may have been Frank Meyer's Paris Ritz version that inspired Craddock, since Craddock's formula used similar ratios but different measures, and we know with very little doubt that the equal parts Paris version was originally created by Pat McGarry in London. While all of this chiasmatic cocktail commerce twixt London and Paris makes for incredibly confusing historical commentary, the upshot is this. As different palettes and sensibilities had the opportunity to test and tweak the sidecar formulation, it migrated from an equal parts recipe to something that resembles what we today would think of as a classic sour ratio. Two or three parts booze, one part sour, and one part sweet. Now, all these measurements are a huge pain in the neck to keep track of if you're just using automatic recall, so I've created a very special Google Sheet with all the recipes I referenced here and in part one so that we can do a little bit of number crunching and so you can compare these different builds based on other qualities like publication date, service method, and ABV. So please, if you have the chance, take a look at all these different sour cocktail recipes lined up next to one another on that spreadsheet. I guarantee it'll give you a completely new appreciation of the format. As a quick aside, two other sidecar recipes that I think are important to share before we move on come courtesy of David Embry, author of the 1948 book, The Fine Art of Mixing Drinks, and Simon Difford, who is a contemporary cocktail scholar and publisher of Difford's Guide. Embry likes a decidedly extreme 8 to 2 to 1 ratio of 2 ounces brandy to 1 half ounce lemon juice to 1 quarter ounce triple sec, while Difford's formulation attempts to drop a peace treaty between the London and Paris recipes with a more gentle 3 to 2 to 2 ratio. While neither of these recipes is what I would personally gravitate toward as either a bartender or a consumer, I think they speak to the underlying reason why there's no set recipe for 
the margarita. Because everyone has a slightly different opinion on how much sweet should be paired with how much sour. In the sidecar world, as we've just seen, and as you can very clearly see on my spreadsheet, people have attempted to solve the sweet-sour problem via vigorous debate, diplomacy, ambassadorship, and entangling geographic alliances fueled by misplaced geographic attribution. It all feels very political. And when you look at these different recipes over time, it can seem like they swing back and forth much like the political pendulum, sometimes more sweet, sometimes more sour, and sometimes very balanced. One thing that will become immediately clear, however, when we turn our attention to margaritas, is that questions about the ideal ratio of ingredients are not solved by politics or statescraft, but rather by technology. To learn about these technological differences between the margarita cocktail and some of the other sours in the category, we first need to investigate some of the details surrounding the rise of tequila, the margarita's popular base spirit. This will give us some insights into just what makes the margarita so special. The earliest mention of a spirit like tequila enters the history books in the early 1600s, when the Spanish were really ramping up their colonial efforts in the New World. One thing we pretty reliably understand about the Spanish is that their Catholic religion played an integral part in the way they established and consolidated control over the people whose land they claimed. And one thing we know about the Catholic Church is that wine was pretty important to the way they did business. So the Spanish would roll into an area, and while some of them were absorbed in spreading diseases and trying to part the natives with their luxuries, resources, and women, others would be busy erecting churches and planting grapes. In some locales, these vineyards thrived. And to learn more about that, you can tune into my interview with Machu Pisco founder Melanie Asher in episode 167. But in other areas of the New World, grapes just weren't all that successful. In places like Mexico, Catholic priests and missionaries may have been stuck trying to get creative with their communion wine sourcing, but that didn't stop thirsty Spanish landowners and businessmen from capitalizing on the native crops and ferment. Since long before the Spanish had arrived, indigenous people had been fermenting a drink called pulque using the sap of agave plants, which were plentiful in certain parts of Mexico. Sources disagree when it comes to establishing the exact date when these mezcal wines were first distilled. Early distilling proponents claim this could have happened as early as the 1530s, while more conservative estimates ascribe the first noteworthy distilling operation to... Alright, gotta take a deep breath here. Don Pedro Sanchez de Tagle, Marquis of Altamira and Caballero de la Orden of Calatrava. That's all one name in the year 1600. A century and a half later, in 1758, Don Jose Antonio de Cuervo was issued a land grant by King Ferdinand VI of Spain in the state of Jalisco in a small town in a valley west of Guadalajara called Tequila. One important inflection point in the story of tequila as it pertains to the margarita cocktail is the fact that the Cuervo family was the first to begin bottling tequila around 1880. There's that year again, 1880. This transition from barrel storage to bottling meant that the spirit could more easily make its way across the border to the U.S., which most likely first occurred courtesy of Don Zenobio Sousa in 1888. 
you'll see Sousa tequila still on shelves to this day. From the late 1880s through the 1910s, tequila very likely enjoyed moderate but stable growth both within and outside of Mexico, but a decade of revolution between 1910 and 1920 threw that all into chaos. On the one hand, tequila became an important symbol to the Mexican people during their revolution, but on the other hand, it was scarce because many rebel factions confiscated it or outright destroyed the property of the distillers who made it. Following the Mexican Revolution, a large percentage of the agave fields previously owned by distillers became redistributed to peasants, which left only a small handful of tequila producers to muddle through the Great Depression in the 1930s. These operations were likely saved from extinction due to the timely arrival of more modern production techniques, such as the use of cultivated yeasts and the pitching of non-agave sugars to boost fermentation efficiency. This might seem like a small detail. It might come off as inconsequential that struggling Mexican distillers found a way to increase their yields at a time when other distillers around the world were doing the exact same thing. But these advances took place at a very important threshold and represent a kind of tuning fork for how sugar would be treated in tequila and tequila cocktails for the next half century. More on that in just a minute. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. I've been a customer for about a year now, and I can say without hesitation that the delivery of frozen farm fresh meat that I receive from Adam and his team makes me do a little happy dance every month. Not only does Near Country offer grass-fed beef and pasture-raised pork, but they also have an awesome selection of chicken and seafood. And the best part is it's all local and it's all sustainably farmed and harvested. You can customize every order or simply leave the selection in their capable hands like I do. Near Country even offers fun add-ons like bones for soups and stocks, as well as special holiday offerings like turkeys, brisket, and more. If you live in the Mid-Atlantic, that's D.C., Maryland, or Virginia, and you're sick of the same bland selection at the grocery store, or you're looking to drastically improve the quality of the protein in your diet, Near Country Provisions has you covered. Head over to nearcountry.com and enter the code BARCART, all one word, when you sign up for your subscription to receive two free pounds of bacon or ground beef in your first delivery. That's BARCART, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, all one word, at checkout. This is easily one of the biggest quality of life improvements I've made in the last year or two, so I hope you'll give Near Country Provisions a shot and let me know what you think. Now, back to the show. From the very first word I set down in this two-part audio essay, I've been struggling to figure out exactly when and how to work in a bunch of conflicting origin stories for the margarita. The reason for this is that most of the anecdotes referenced online seem to lack a certain element of validity or definitiveness. To me, and hopefully to you, it doesn't matter which bartender reached into the well and grabbed the wrong bottle when somebody ordered a daisy. It doesn't matter which famous actress claimed to be allergic to all spirits except tequila. It doesn't matter at which bar in Tijuana or Juarez or LA or Galveston someone first shook up tequila and citrus and orange liqueur and poured the mixture into a glass, very likely with a salted rim, and called it a margarita. As we established in part one, margarita is simply the Spanish word for daisy, and 
as if the fact that we're describing a tequila daisy isn't enough, it also just so happens that margarita was an extremely popular name in Mexico during the 1930s and 1940s when all these alleged origin stories are said to take place. To me, there are precisely two cocktail recipes that matter when it comes to the origins of the margarita. One is called the Picador and appears in UK bartender Billy Tarling's Café Royal cocktail book in 1937, and the other is New York bartender Charlie Connolly's Tequila Sour, which appears in the world-famous Cotton Club 1939 book of mixed drinks in, you guessed it, 1939. The Picador is a two-to-one-to-one combination of tequila to Cointreau to lime juice, while the tequila sour is a three-to-one-to-one combo of the same ingredients featuring a salted rim. The fact that these two cocktails hail from bartenders in London and New York implies that tequila by this time had become available to drinkers in both the U.S. and Europe, and the fact that one employs a salted rim while the other is more minimal implies that there's some flexibility as to the precise service method for a drink sporting tequila, orange liqueur, and lime. This duo of recipes establishes what I'll refer to as the rough prototype for a margarita cocktail, which falls somewhere between Frank Meyer's and Harry Craddock's sidecar cocktail ratios, albeit using different measures. In most margarita cocktails from this point forward, you're going to encounter something like two or three parts booze to one part orange liqueur to one part lime juice. Any divergence from this should be considered a very conscious stylistic choice, and we're going to take a look at two very important examples of that in just a minute. The 1950s is really when the American drinking public discovered the margarita, with references to the beverage appearing by name in quite a few periodicals. This comes close upon the heels of the first official Mexican standard for tequila, which was published in 1949 and required that the spirit contain 100% agave. This standard was softened in 1964 to allow for 30% of a distillate to be comprised of non-agave sugars, which was again raised to 49% allowable in 1970. So, long story short, By the time 1970 rolled around, you only really had to have 51% of your tequila as actual agave distillate. Remember when I said this episode was going to be all about sugar? And remember how I said that the margarita cocktail solved problems about its formulation using technology rather than diplomacy? Well, here's where those predictions come true. This switch from 100% de agave tequila to blended-based tequilas called mixtos is an elaboration on that first industrial revolution of tequila in the 20s and 30s when distillers started pitching yeast and using alternative sugars. One thing that has never changed about agave, and hopefully never will, is the difficulty with which its starches are broken down into sugars. So these early yeast and sugar innovations in the tequila world help distillers to be more efficient, likely saving them from ruin in a difficult business landscape after a decade of civil war. But in the latter half of the 20th century, these further additions of non-agave sugars into the manufacturing process are all about increasing profits and appealing to an American consumer base that by all accounts seemed to favor bland spirits like vodka and unaged rum. The reason why consumers today are so leery of mixto tequilas is because we feel like they're trying to rip us off. 
trying to put an inferior product in our glass when instead we could be drinking a genuine article. But if you soften your gaze a little bit and approach this question of mixing distillate bases not as a stockbroker, but more like an artist, you realize that what's happening at the level of flavor is that we're getting something entirely different on the palate when we start mixing different sugars. In the still, you get a more efficient ferment and distillate. And on the palate, well, let's just say it's about to get even more complicated. The two types of sugar that we need to look at here are sucrose, which you can think of as table sugar, and fructose, or fruit sugar. Sucrose is what we're talking about when we think of those sweet orange liqueurs like Cointreau and Grand Marnier, and fructose is the primary sugar in those agave plants that we use to create tequila. Researchers use sucrose as the baseline by which all other sugars are measured. So when a tasting study is conducted and a participant is asked to taste and rate a number of carefully titrated sugar water solutions, sucrose is always given a score of 1, and all other scores are calculated in relation to sucrose. So if you're looking at a margarita and trying to figure out what's being hacked to give your brain an extra boost of happy chemicals, you want to look at the amount of sucrose-based sweetener in the recipe and then consider the following three facts. Number one, under controlled laboratory conditions, studies indicate that fructose exhibits perceived sweetness levels far higher than sucrose. That means that if you have any fructose in your margarita in the form of high fructose corn syrup or agave nectar, and these are as sweeteners, mind you, it's going to be perceived as sweeter than it would with a corresponding amount of sucrose. We'll have a couple of prime examples of this in just a minute. Number two, fructose is perceived as sweeter in colder solutions. You know, like a cocktail that you shake and serve over ice. And number three, in combination, sucrose and fructose have a synergistic effect on the taster, being perceived as sweeter than an equal amount of either sugar by itself. One thing we need to be careful of here is assuming that tequila contains fructose. Generally speaking, it doesn't. That fructose is what gets transformed into alcohol. But with that one caveat in mind, I do need to drop a final fructose fact on you. And be warned, it's big, it's dirty, and it's uncomfortable. Here it is. Fructose has a much lower glycemic index than sucrose, about two and a half times lower, in fact, which means it doesn't make your blood sugar spike when you consume it. Seems like a good thing, right? But even though it does you the favor of raising your blood sugar much more slowly than sucrose, it needs to get processed directly by the liver, which tends to convert it straight into fat. Over time, this can result in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or simply exacerbate a fatty liver issue caused by excess alcohol consumption over time. The TLDR on fructose is that it gives you a lot of bang for your buck on the palate, which sends those sweet, happy signals onto your brain. This is amazing for mixologists because it allows them to decide if A, they want to optimize for balance by using a smaller amount of fructose than sucrose, knowing that it packs a sweeter punch, or B, they just want to go hog wild and load in as much sweetness as possible because your liver is your problem. This brings us to the Cadillac Margarita. In the 1970s and 1980s, this drink started popping up on cocktail menus all over the U.S. Punch 
has a pretty good article on the topic, courtesy of past guest Aaron Goldfarb. So I'll link to that in the show notes and let Aaron walk you through most of the speculation about origin stories and the evolution of the drink. But what's most important about the Cadillac Margarita for our purposes are its impressive sugar profile and its ability to play on the psychology of imbibers to evoke a luxury drinking experience. The recipe for the Cadillac Margarita has been watered down, bastardized, and palimpsested rather viciously over time, to the point where even Aaron wasn't able to offer a definitive recipe in his history article. But from what I've been able to gather, here's the general idea. The drink kicks off with an ounce and a half of tequila. So far, sounds like a margarita. To that, we also add three quarters of an ounce of lime juice. Alright, no, it sounds like we're listing Billy Tarling's picador recipe measure for measure, so what's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. True to 1970s and 80s mixology, this cocktail employs a measure of sweet and sour mix. I'm assuming something in the order of three quarters of an ounce. And this mix more than likely contained a healthy dose of high fructose corn syrup. So, there's your fructose. But wait, there's more. It was served with either a float or a whole shot of Grand Marnier, which you could interpret to be anywhere from a conservative half ounce to a generous two ounces of added sucrose-laden modifier, and this is in addition to whatever sugar is in that sweet and sour mix. There's no specific service method stipulated for the Cadillac Margarita, but most images I'm able to pull up involve that oversized stemmed margarita glass filled with ice and adorned with an aggressively salted rim. So in terms of service method, if there's a question about how it's served, the answer is yes. It's just yes. Served up? Yes. Served on the rocks? Somehow also yes. Salted rim? Definitely. And you know what? Just float a shot of Grand Marnier in there. In fact, many of the recipes online have images of those little mini sort of airplane bottles of Grand Marnier actually clipped to the side of the glass. So that's at least 50 mLs in there. It's it's a uh, fascinating and a little bit terrifying. I know that Taco Bell technically has a copyright on that whole Live Moss slogan, but man, if ever there was an appropriate time to use it, it would be when drinking a Cadillac margarita. The psychological genius of this cocktail is that it called for premium tequila, which often means it employed reposado or añejo spirits, which conveyed a sense of premiumness, right? They rested in a barrel for so long, and therefore they are more premium than the clear versions. This is an excellent pairing with Grand Marnier when you think about it, because this liqueur has been about living big from the start. Both the Grand Marnier and the barrel-aged tequila are going to have small amounts of a third sugar known as xylitol, which is a wood sugar that helps create the desserty profiles of various barrel-aged spirits. And I know that xylitol sounds very artificial, but it's actually a sugar that's inherent in most woods, right? You just got to bring it out somehow, and the extraction process of those spirits resting in those barrels is what conveys the xylitol from the wood to the spirit. So it sounds very kind of sterile, but it's actually a naturally occurring thing. Long story short, a Cadillac is a big luxurious car. A Cadillac margarita is a big luxurious drink. 
And if you drink too many of them, there's no doubt that you'll be carting around a big, luxurious gut and a matching big, luxurious liver before too long. Before we move on to our final margarita of the series, I just want to take a second to defend the Cadillac margarita because I think it would be a bit hasty to view this drink 50 years later with our current mixology lens and laugh it off as just a simple monstrosity. I think it pushed the envelope at a time when people were looking for something more interesting, and I think it got away with its over-the-topness with lots of salt, a very cold and self-deluding service method, right, with all that ice probably crushed, the power of premium marketing, which is really, really intense to this day. I mean, just think of all the celebrity tequilas out there. And of course, a consumer base with relatively low expectations. That all changed in the 90s when people started getting a little more conscious about their waistbands and a little more skeptical about the truckloads of sugar that were being crammed down our throats by soft drink companies and large food conglomerates everywhere. Enter Julio Bermejo. His family owned Tommy's Mexican Restaurant in the Richmond neighborhood of San Francisco. Before he was of legal drinking age, he experienced some vicious hangovers allegedly caused by cheap mixto tequilas that he was able to sneak out of the bar. These early experiences led him to develop a decidedly lighter, more refreshing take on the margarita cocktail when he took over the bar years later. Initially, his margarita build consisted of two ounces of 100% de agave tequila, three quarters of an ounce of fresh lime juice, an innovation at the time, and a similar measure of simple syrup, which had long since replaced orange liqueur as the sweetener at the bar. In the early 90s, most guests ordered these blended, and Bermejo famously discouraged the use of a salt rim, claiming that it was unnecessary. But by the end of the decade, even the blender was gone, and the simple syrup was replaced by agave nectar. This came at an incredible time for the bar world, which was just about to experience a true renaissance. So when Bermejo's bar and his incredible margarita were discovered by rising star bartender Tony Abu Ghanim in 1995 or 96, it very quickly started taking the industry by storm. First, it became a cocktail staple in Las Vegas, where Abu Ghanim went on to build massive beverage programs, and from there, it spread its influence all over the world. If the Cadillac Margarita is an exercise in excess, the Tommy's Margarita is an exercise in simplicity. The question for Bermejo wasn't so much how much can we add, it was how much of the accumulated artificiality, distraction, and technology of the 20th century can we take away and still have a margarita? There's two things I'd like to point out about the Tommy's Margarita that make it a standout in the category for me. First, it splits the difference between the 1937 Billy Tarling Picador recipe and the iconic Harry Craddock sidecar recipe. And to me, that makes it a simply wonderful booze forward and refreshing addition to the tequila sour family. And second, the absence of salt and the utilitarian on the rock service method really signal that the Tommy's Margarita isn't looking to hide anything. On the surface, and looking back after nearly two decades of excellent cocktails, it might be easy to say, refreshing margarita on the rocks, big deal. I mean, we've been doing that forever. But this move toward transparency and quality ingredients really was a mammoth innovation that shook the bar world to its core. 
Despite its virtues, however, this drink does come with a couple important catches, and I wouldn't be doing my job if I left without mentioning them. One is that many people, myself included, would argue that it's not technically a margarita. Without the orange liqueur, I feel like it needs to be classified as a humble tequila sour. Even humbler than Charlie Connolly's 1939 tequila sour recipe that did include triple sec. Also, I know that the implication is that the agave nectar in the Tommy's margarita makes it somehow healthier than whatever came before it, or maybe that, you know, it's more authentic because it's referencing back to tequila's agave distillate base, but that's just good marketing. Agave nectar is simply the latest in a century-long hit parade of largely fructose-laden sugar technologies that allow us to throw back one of the world's most delicious and crushable drinks and not feel as bad about ourselves for doing so. Does the agave nectar give the cocktail more flavor than simple syrup? Undoubtedly. And for that reason alone, I'm happy to give the Tommy's Margarita a valued place in the Margarita Pantheon, even though it doesn't contain an essential ingredient. But this is like one of those episodes of the show Chopped when someone leaves a basket ingredient out of one of the dishes, but wins the competition anyway. It's not impossible, but you know that when you commit an error that serious, everything else had better be perfect. My friends, I feel like we've come a long way together during this two-part monstrosity of an audio essay. We've journeyed from the origins of sour taste perception in the roundworm C. elegans to the cocktail innovations of people who are still very much alive and influencing the beverage world that you and I have the pleasure of participating in. I hope you'll head over to the show notes pages for these episodes where you'll be able to find the full text as well as links, spreadsheets, and references to a lot of the sciencey stuff I've been mentioning on the topic of taste perception. I'm planning on taking a week off after this episode because looking back, I've written what amounts to a college-level thesis on the margarita, and most students, they get a whole year to get that damn thing done, not just a couple weeks, so I think I've earned it. If you can believe it, There's some things I left out, including a wild conspiracy theory about Grand Marnier, some science pertaining to salt, and even my thoughts on the pervasive skinny margarita. If someone wants to have me on another podcast and grill me on those, please feel free. But for now, I thought I'd do us all a favor in the interest of brevity and bring things home by offering my large-scale takeaways from all this talk about the evolution of the margarita. The technical genius of the margarita is that no matter what kind of recipe you have in front of you, there's a very, very high chance that it's hacking some part of your physiology that makes you want to have another one. Whether that hack is driven by a salted rim that makes you thirsty while simultaneously calming your taste perception of the spicy tacos you're eating, or by our inability to produce endogenous vitamin C making us crave that hit of citrus, or by fructose that's talking nice to your blood sugar while kicking your liver under the table, or by the mere perception that the ingredients in your glass are somehow more premium or natural than the alternatives. In other sour cocktails, I feel like body and acid are the real stars of the show. That's why egg white or aquafaba are so popular in a whiskey sour, and why a truly delicious lime cordial is the key to a perfect gimlet experience, for example. And of course, we can't leave out the daiquiri, which will always be the ultimate litmus test of a bartender's ability to balance sweet, sour, and booze. 
but the margarita ain't any of those things. Body? Who cares? Serve it up. Serve it blended. Serve it on the rocks. I'll drink it however you bring it. Acid profile? Lime juice. Fresh. Nothing else to talk about. And as far as balance goes, well, let's just say the margarita is far more concerned with perception than it is with reality. Today's margaritas have come a long way from the vestigial grogs, the dandyish sugar-rimmed crustas, and the flamboyant new-style daisies we covered in part one. They've survived numerous changes in the laws governing their most important ingredient, tequila, and by looking around at the kinds of margaritas being served at your favorite bars and restaurants, by analyzing those ingredients and asking questions about what they're telling you outright and what they might be trying to hide, you just might be able to learn a little bit about the pulse of the drinking culture you're experiencing at any given moment. I'm Eric Koslick. I host this podcast. I'm not quite sure what I did here, but ultimately I hope you find it valuable. And most importantly, I hope you can refrain from repeating most of this to your unsuspecting friends next time you're sipping on margaritas, because if you've made it all the way to the end of this two-part audio essay, it's very likely that nobody's going to care about any of it as much as you do. Cheers. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed and a whole lot of research and writing and research and more writing by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2022.